Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Today we focus on the First Amendment, and in particular, the First Amendment rights of social media companies to moderate content. Last Friday, a federal appeals court upheld a Texas law that bars social media companies from removing posts based on a user's point of view. The law was supported by members of the state's Republican leadership who have accused companies like Facebook and Twitter of censoring conservative voices. The reaction to the ruling has been swift. Legal experts have called it legally bonkers and incoherent. To unpack the decision, I'm joined by Jamil Jaffer, the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Jamil was previously the deputy legal director of the ACLU, and he's long been considered one of the country's foremost experts in free speech law, so I'm glad he's with us. Jamil, welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. So let's talk about this case and what it means and how sort of off the charts it is. First, this law that we're talking about here out of the state of Texas gives us a lot of stuff to talk about. HB 20. What is it that the law does that was challenged? So this is Texas's relatively new social media law, and it imposes uh, a broad set of obligations on social media platforms, uh, broadly defined. And uh, maybe the most controversial provision is a must-carry provision that uh, prohibits Text, uh, prohibit social media platforms from discriminating on the basis of viewpoint. So they can't take down uh, users' posts because of the viewpoint expressed in those posts. Um, the law also includes a bunch of other requirements, transparency mandates, uh, requiring the, the social media platforms to disclose information about their content moderation policies, uh, due process mandates requiring the platforms to explain to people who are deplatformed why they've been deplatformed. But I would say that the must-carry provision, the, 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 the non-discrimination provision, uh, is probably the most controversial part of the law. So if upheld, does that mean, do I have this right, does that mean that if somebody posts on a social media site within Texas anti-Semitic or racist or other content, it can't be taken off? Yeah, can't be taken off uh, on the basis of that on that content. Now, you know, I suppose in theory, you could take content off if, you know, if we're posted 100,000 times, then maybe that's a content neutral justification for removing the content. Uh, but the platforms would not be able to take down content simply because it is racist or anti-Semitic uh, or endorses terrorism or anything like that. What if it's false? I, I think same thing. I think that the non-viewpoint discrimination provision uh, would foreclose platforms from taking down speech uh, on the basis of purported falsehood. Right, because uh, who's to well. say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's to, who's I mean, I, I think one question here is just what does this law actually mean? And if the platforms actually had to implement it, 
uh, I think it would be a nightmare because um, it's it is not at all obvious how these terms map onto like viewpoint viewpoint discrimination maps onto um, the platform's content moderation practices. So then, how did this how did this law end up in court? Well, let me just say that this is one of two big social media laws that are coming out of the states right now. So there's the Texas law. There's also a Florida law, um, which has already gone up to the Eleventh Circuit. In, in you know, in both cases, you have coalitions of platforms challenging the constitutionality of those laws. The Florida law is similar in many ways to the Texas law. Uh, you have these platforms challenging the constitutionality of the laws, principally on First Amendment grounds, uh, arguing that their content moderation practices uh, reflect editorial judgment uh, that is protected by the First Amendment. And the platforms are arguing that any law that requires them to publish things they don't want to publish or that uh, forecloses them from taking content down that they would like to take down uh, uh, infringes on their editorial judgment and violates the First Amendment. So that's the basic structure of the arguments in these cases. How did this law get into court? What, what's the challenge? Yeah, so the platforms brought the uh, brought the case in in both Florida and in in Texas. The Eleventh Circuit uh, in the Florida case struck down uh, the Florida law, and in this case, the the Fifth Circuit case, uh, the court uh, upheld the the Texas law. So now there's a circuit split. Uh, you have you know one appeals court having said that the social media regulation of this kind uh, is not a First Amendment problem, and the other court saying, essentially, it is a First Amendment problem. And the truth is that there are really difficult questions in both of these uh, cases about to what extent the content moderation policies of the platforms is protected by the First Amendment, uh, what it means that the platforms are engaged in editorial judgment uh, what kinds of regulations might be constitutional in this context? There are a lot of hard questions. I don't think that the Fifth Circuit opinion, which is the one that came out on Friday, uh, really struggles with those hard questions at all. Instead, uh, the basic theory of the uh, majority opinion is that the platforms aren't engaged in editorial judgment at all. What they're engaged in is censorship, um, and there is no First Amendment problem with a state prohibiting private actors from engaging in censorship. Uh, that's the theory of the majority opinion. Yeah, so I learned in law school and we discussed on the show, and experts say all the time, that there's a difference between private actors, whether that's individuals or corporations on the one hand, or state actors, meaning governments. How much does this decision in the Fifth Circuit, if it stands, call into question that distinction that we've always held to be very important? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the most bewildering thing about the Fifth Circuit uh, decision is that uh, it treats these editorial decisions by private actors as if they were subject to the First Amendment. And, you know, the truth is that the First Amendment was meant to guarantee the freedom of private speakers to uh, decide for themselves which speech is worth uh, publishing and which speech isn't worth publishing. Right. And, and, and two things there, right? Both the right to speak and the right not to speak, and both are implicated here. That's right. That, that's exactly right. You know, the, the, the problem with the Fifth Circuit opinion is that uh, it just recasts editorial judgment of these platforms as censorship uh, and, and just kind of, you know, overlooks the fact that these these platforms are private actors making constitutionally protected decisions um, relating to the publication of speech. So it's it's just a, a kind of 
Alice in Wonderland opinion, it's very difficult to, to make any sense of. It's impossible to reconcile with existing precedents. Um, and again, I don't want to suggest that you know, the the answers in this case or in the Florida case are obvious. I really do think that they're hard cases, but I don't think that the Fifth Circuit decision uh, really gets there at all because the Fifth Circuit is, is really just engaged in kind of a uh, an exercise in relabeling, uh, you know, labeling as censorship things that have traditionally been thought of as editorial judgment, and labeling as editorial judgment things that have you know traditionally been thought of as censorship, and it's and, and, very and treating, unsatisfying. Yeah. yeah, and treating like a government, an entity that's a that's that's in the private yeah. sector. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is one. You know, the the Fifth Circuit does say one thing that I think you know is indisputably true, which is. Social media platforms are very different from newspapers. There's this long line of cases protecting the editorial judgment of newspapers. And the Fifth Circuit says, uh, well, that's all well and good when it comes to newspapers, but social media companies are different from newspapers. Hard to dispute, right? Um, obviously, they're different. But what the Fifth Circuit then does is uh, it says that because they're different from newspapers, they're not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, you know, their editorial judgments don't count as, as far as the First Amendment is concerned. Well, are they are they sort of saying is this part of the argument, either explicitly or implicitly, that social media platforms are like public squares, and in the public square, you shouldn't be able to suppress speech? Does that make sense? Is that what they're getting at here, or not? I think at a very high level of generality, yes, that is the impulse behind an opinion like this. And I'm not altogether unsympathetic to that impulse. I think it is true that social media companies, uh, well, a small number of social media companies, uh, play an outsized role in determining who gets to speak uh, in our society, who gets heard in our society, um, which ideas get heard. You know, Facebook and YouTube, these companies have a lot of say in who gets to participate in public discourse. So I'm on board that far. But it is also true that these companies are making editorial judgments all the time. They are deciding, you know, which speech should be promoted. They have content moderation practices that, uh, you know, limit the kinds of speech that people can post on their platforms. Uh, they are not like newspapers, but they are not like AT and T either. You know, there's something quite different from, uh, you know, both of those other media. And, you know, the challenge in cases like the Florida case and the Texas case is that the doctrinal boxes that exist right now um, are not really that flexible and they don't account for actors like the social media platform. So you kind of have to step back and think about, well, what is it that's different about social media platforms from newspapers? What is it that distinguishes social media platforms from AT&T? And should those differences matter? And how should those differences matter in First Amendment doctrine? That's the analysis that the you know that, that we needed from the Fifth Circuit and we didn't get. But from what I can tell of the opinion, it is not just about social media companies and trying to figure out how you categorize them as compared to newspapers or other private entities. The opinion says the following, and I wonder how crazy this is or not crazy this is. Quote, today we reject the idea that corporations have a freewheeling First Amendment right to censor what people say, end quote. What are the implications for that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd be shocked if the Supreme Court signed on to uh, a statement like that. Um, you know, again, even, even this Supreme Court, even this Supreme Court, I mean, in some ways, especially the Supreme Court, because this Supreme Court has been 
uh, highly attuned to property rights, right? And if you take the Fifth Circuit's uh, statement seriously, you're giving government actors a lot of authority to uh, override what have you know conventionally been thought of as as owners' rights with respect to their own property. Um, but I, I don't I don't think that they're you know I don't think that the Fifth Circuit uh, would follow that logic very far outside of this particular context. So that's an astonishing statement. Yeah, it's astonishing and just not not uh, not a statement that that I think can really be taken at face value. If it were and it were upheld hypothetically, doesn't that statement then allow a law to be passed that would prevent a private employer or an office from taking action in the workplace if people said anti-Semitic things or racist things? Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's right. I wonder what it would mean for you know conventional newspapers. Like, what does it mean to say that uh, you know the government can uh, impose must-carry obligations on actors that uh, have conventionally been understood to be exercising editorial judgment? I just think that it would give governments a ton of power to manipulate public discourse, to censor uh, ideas that are disfavored. Uh, and to override the you know speech rights of of private speakers. So what's going to happen? I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to endorse this reasoning. Am I correct, as you've described already, that given that there's a circuit split, similar law in Florida struck down, the law in Texas upheld at the circuit court level? Does that mean necessarily that the Supreme Court will take this up? Uh, I'm not sure necessarily, but I think it's highly likely. Um, I, I think that these are, you know, issues of obvious importance. There's a clear circuit split. These are issues that in some ways only the Supreme Court can can clear up because they require, you know, at the very least an extension of existing doctrine. Uh, so I think it's highly likely that the Supreme's gonna, the Supreme Court's going to take this, at least one of these cases and probably both of them. And do you think, as you said a second ago, the likelihood is that the Supreme Court, and you said especially the Supreme Court, will strike down the Florida law and the Texas law? And if so, do you want to take a gander at what the vote will be? Um, well, I, I think that the Supreme Court is likely to strike down the must-carry provisions uh, of both the Florida and the Texas law. I don't think that the Supreme Court uh, is going to be comfortable with state legislatures or the federal government for that matter, telling the platforms what they can publish or what they can't publish. But these laws also have those transparency and due process uh, provisions as well. And I think that there is a really important question uh, how those provisions are going to be analyzed by, you know, by the Supreme Court. Because uh, there is one version, the, the platform's argument here is essentially that any law that implicates their editorial judgment is necessarily unconstitutional. And I think it would be a mistake for the Supreme Court to adopt that an argument that broad, uh, because an argument that broad would preclude not only the kind of, you know, abusive le uh, legislation that Texas and Florida uh, have passed here, but even narrowly drawn transparency or due process or interoperability or privacy laws uh, that would serve First Amendment values and serve democratic values. So um, I'm hoping, I don't, you know, I, I don't really want to try to predict what the Supreme Court will do, but I hope what the court does is find uh, a kind of path that articulates a vision of the First Amendment that precludes the kind of must-carry laws that Texas and Florida have passed here, but still leaves space for 
uh, other regulation that is more narrowly crafted. I'm going to ask you a final question. I asked you before we started recording, just so people can get a sense of, based on your experience, how out of whack the Fifth Circuit opinion is. Scale of one to 10, how out of whack is it? Nine. 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 Okay. It is an it is an Alice in Wonderland opinion. I mean, it's 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 worth reading in a way, just you know, for that reason. Well, you know, the tone, yeah, has some attitude in it, even as it does something remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it it, it is a kind of contemptuous uh, opinion. It, it it reads like uh, you know, how could anybody come to any conclusion other than the one we're coming right. to here, <laughs> right. when in fact, you know, no other court has ever come to this kind of conclusion before. Jamil Jaffer. Thank you for your time. Thank you for explaining stuff to us. Thanks, Preet. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.